Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is the author of one of the most intense books I think I've ever read. The book is One Foot Wrong, Sophie Laguna's debut work of adult fiction. Sophie, welcome. Well, good morning, Maggie. Now, I'm going to ask you to draw on your acting skills and uh, we'll talk a bit more about that later as well and just read to us a little bit from the novel to give the listeners a sense of the book. Great. I was stirring the stew when someone spoke to me. Sack was in the living room tapping her foot to Alleluia coming from the radio box. Boot was outside chopping wood. It was the wooden spoon in my hand who had spoken to me. It was only a whisper and hard to hear. I had to bend close to the stew to hear spoon better. I smelled warm meat and onion. Ask Boot for pencils and paper, Spoon whispered. Alleluia, sang the radio box. Praise him. Chop went axe into the block. I didn't ask Boot or Sack for anything. I knew better. You should know better, Hester. You're a big girl now. I should know better, I whispered back to Spoon. Praise him, praise him, sang the radio box. Chop, chop, went axe into the block. Spoon lifted meat and potato from the pot as she stirred. Ask Boot. But I'm a big girl now, I whispered back. Ask him. But ask him. After we'd eaten the stew, Sack said that her back was giving her trouble and she was going to bed. Boot sat at the table making a matchstick boat in a bottle. Spoon lay clean and drying across the rack. I could see her. The floor was capped. Ask now, said Spoon. Now? Yes, now. But... Oh. Could I have a pencil and paper? I asked Boot. He looked up from his boat building. A matchstick shook between his fingers. What? He said. Could I have a pencil and paper? He waited. Why don't you call me Daddy? Or Papa? What is wrong with you? Every daughter calls their father daddy or papa. Why not mine? I looked at Boot, at his trousers and his white fingers holding the matchstick. There were some small dark hairs on the knuckles. I looked at his neck coming out of the top of his shirt. His neck had grey hairs, faint red lines and some brown spots that looked soft like sponge. Why had they grown up out of his skin, those spots? What was inside them? Boot scratched at his shoulder. Father, could I have a pencil and paper? The circles of Boot's eyes filled with water that came from a deep well beneath his feet. He put down the matchstick. Matchstick quick whispered thank you and came to me across the room. He held my face in his hands. They smelled of stew and boat glue and he kissed the top of my head. Then he went into the lot to study. He came back with a pencil and some paper. The paper had blue lines running across. I had to hold back my hungry hands from grabbing. What are you going to do with them, Hester? He asked. Are you going to write me a letter? His mouth curled up at the sides as he passed me the pencil and the paper. I lay across the floor and started to draw. I couldn't wait. Boot watched for a minute, then he went back to the boat. Don't make a mess, he said. The pencil had me sailing on a spoonboat, the way Noah did in the storm. 
I wore a skirt and a flower hat and I stood at the front of the spoon boat. It was me who knew the way. We sailed through the hole in the bottle. I hope you've drawn a picture of me, said Boot, his mouth curling up again. Show me. He bent down to where I lay on the floor and he looked at my picture. What is all of this? He shook his head. I can let you have the pencils and paper for drawing as long as we clean up after ourselves. Then Boot took my spoon boat and he turned it into a small ball. He put it in the kitchen bin with the bones and the dust. You can have more later. It will be our secret. He put his fingers to his mouth. Mm. I've got chills just listening to it again. <laughs> I hope that's a good thing. It's a good thing, yes. Yeah, chills are always good. It's good. <laughs> Even if they're not good chills. Um, so when you're reading that, do you, do you feel in a way, and I guess the same as when you're writing it, that you know, you're inhabiting somebody else's body, that, that you're really getting into the mind of this very different person to you. I, I think that's true. And, you know, reading it again, because it's been a couple of, I think, a month or two since I've read out loud, it's quite exhilarating. And I realise too how theatrical the writing is in a way. I do, I do, I guess, inhabit her quite fully. She always came very naturally to me. That was the mystery of this voice. I, I nearly had to sit sit at my desk and not think too hard was the strange the strange use my intellect too much to have to find if that makes sense well it does I, I guess it's a kind of intuitive understanding that's it it is it is and it's an intuitive sort of writing too because when I'm in her I'm not I don't have to be concerned so much with with whether the sentences all make grammatical sense because she's got such an individual way of communicating. So I just have to be true to that voice. So in that way, it's really liberating because it's Hester doing the work and not Sophie. I don't want to sound too cosmic about it or anything, but but I guess yeah, that that's the, that's the easy part of making this book. There are other parts that weren't easy, but that 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 is the easy part actually being in her voice. But is it hard to, to maintain that consistency? I mean, did you find yourself tempted, for example, to step back away from her, if only for some relief for yourself? If that's interesting. It, it wasn't hard to maintain the consistency, but I could only do it for short periods of time. So, you know, I've written um, a couple of books for, for, for teenagers and, you know, I, I would be able to stay with them for hours on end. But with Hester, sometimes 20 minutes was really enough and I would find every reason under the sun to get up off my chair and go do something else. And I would give myself a hard time about that, but I think in retrospect, probably the only way I could maintain the intensity um, was, was by doing her in short bursts. And some of the very early um, pieces in the story, uh, some of the... Some of the writing began eight years ago and really didn't change much in, in that eight years. So, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that when I was in her voice, 
it, I, I was very fully there, but I couldn't, I couldn't maintain it for hours. Did, did you find the other characters difficult to materialise through Hester? Because of course, of course, it is all through her perspective. Um, did you find Second Boot difficult, for example? Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I said to you that reading reading the book out was exhilarating, and writing it was, was liberating. But I'm also remembering now, as I, as I hear your question, that it was also limiting, in that in the way that a first-person perspective is. You really have to remain absolutely true to this one way of seeing. But um, I enjoyed her perspective. So in that way, Boots and Sack weren't, weren't difficult to create on the page. I just wish that from the beginning I'd trusted Hester's perspective because the, the novel took seven or eight years, but that was largely because I didn't trust Hester's voice alone to carry the story. So I, um, I developed Boot and Sack as characters um, with their own voices. And so originally, you know, one of the drafts had their voices interwoven with Hester's. Um, but if I just stuck with her voice, really they, the descriptions of them and who they were, again, again came quite naturally. I had to make sure with Sack that I gave her some redeeming moments. And Boot too. And, and, and Boot too, and Boot too. I guess I was more consciously concerned with Sack because she was in a way the ringleader of, of the abuse, although I felt that he was, his passive aggression was, was just as bad. But it's funny, I was, I was more conscious of having to stitch those, those moments in with her mm. than I was with him. Yes, and I, I suppose keeping it to Hester's voice also helps with the sort of showing and not telling because everything we learn about them comes through her perspective and so you don't have to tell us a thing. That's right, that's right. Mm. And um, yeah, it, it was most enjoyable. I know, I know, I know, you know, so much of this, this story has been described as harrowing but, but there was something, I've, I've used the word liberating before, but there was in, in, in telling this story. And, um, you know, even though Boot and Sack are the abusers, I still love so much about the creation of them. You know, mm. the fact that Boot spends all that time building boats in bottles. I, I really enjoyed that metaphor. And, and I enjoyed their names also. If, if enjoy is the right word, it's, it's difficult to describe the kind of satisfaction that comes from writing because it's not, it's not straight up fun as we know it. But, um, yes, it's the yeah. pleasure of creation. <laughs> that bit, and you know, someone quoted a famous writer to me whose name I wish I, I could recall that, that writing was the kind of fun you have in hell. <laughs> <laughs> Which is particularly probably fitting to this, to this book. It sounds like Martin Amos or something. That's right, probably. <laughs> so going way back to before you actually were working with Hester at, um, at university, was there something that inspired you, a news account or somebody you knew? How do you think she got in your head in the first place? Again, you know, I, I would like to be able to say to you that, that it was a news event, but... The, the idea came, um, I was studying, as you say, uh, writing at, at RMIT and 
that particular morning we were looking at crime fiction. This is, this is where the, the, I got the idea originally for this story. We were looking at crime fiction in which I'd never had a particularly strong interest. And the teacher said that most crime writers have a very, um, a very clear plan and an outline for their stories fairly early on. And so we were asked as a class to come up with a 10-point plan for a, a potential crime novel, just as an exercise. And because I was rather unattached to the genre and, and therefore to that particular class, I just very loosely, in the same way that, that I write Hester, wrote down this, this 10 point plan in which this, this girl is, is terribly overfed. These are the images that came that I didn't, that I didn't have to work for. And I, I think sometimes that can be an advantage because you, your own thinking doesn't get in the way. And so it's all very unconscious. So it was just about this girl who was terribly abused and overfed until one day she, is the word, executes her, her revenge? Yes, I think that's probably a good word. <laughs> yeah, and because I was really relaxed, I made the revenge really bloody and really graphic. In my mind, I saw the kind of images that Peter Greenaway had in his film, is it The Cook, The Wife, The Thief and The Lover? I always get the order mixed up. Yes. But very, very over the top. And that's because I never thought I would be able to get, get it right, so I may as well just enjoy myself. And I get, yeah, again, that was probably an advantage for me. And then when I read that plan out, because that was the next part of the exercise, without any attachment to what my fellow workshop participants would have to say about it, I was amazed because they all absolutely loved it and said, you have got to develop that. It's a, it's a, it's a, really, it's a really good idea. And that that kind of encouragement is what got me started. But so again, I'm 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 almost ashamed to have to tell you, Maggie, that it's kind of it's it's unconscious material. That's okay. I, I think, and that's good. I mean, it's you know, I'm glad that it wasn't based on anything true. And then you know it was so extraordinary when it when the book was released at the same time as as a, as a number of really awful stories in the media came out about girls whose who, who were enduring, if it's possible, worse circumstances than the ones Hester had to live through. You know, the 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 um, the, Frit, the Frit, what was his name, the Fritzel case mm. in Austria, and others, and others, and more recently a case in Australia. Um, so so that was that was very strange timing. Yes, I suppose though, taking it from the point of view of the character is what makes it so so unique to actually bring us to that place where we get to experience it um, but not only experience it badly because it's also in many ways it's quite upbeat at times yeah, yeah that's right I am I am told that it is there's something in it regardless of of what she lives through there's something consistently upbeat I think in her in her voice in her beautiful way of seeing the world um, for me she was I was I was always for me she was always a visionary and I never saw her as, as as mad for a moment. I just saw her as seeing straight to the heart of the matter. And the book asks, uh, well, I don't know if it asks these questions, but Hester certainly asks these questions about God and eternity and life beyond all the things we can touch and see and smell. And um, it is a book probably about about the great mystery of being alive as well as it is about about family. Mm. And almost even I got the sense, and I know there's some question 
that's left open about whether Hester actually does have some sort of condition or whether, you know, there this is, this yes. is caused. But I almost got the feeling that there was a kind of almost dispersion quality to her perceptions, that there was an intensity in her gaze, that you almost, you almost feel that that's endemic, that that's part of who she is. I, I, think, I think you're probably right. And I think, you know, under very different circumstances, a character like Hester would have said, of course, very differently. I, I think she's particularly creative and sensitive and that the combination of characteristics that make up Hester under those particular circumstances, then you end up with a character that, that you know, some would want to medicate and, and call call mad or have some sort of a syndrome. But but perhaps perhaps it's, it's her artistic temperament. Mm, that's right. Yeah. Now, um, we'll talk about the acting. Obviously, it gives you a bit of an edge when you do a reading. But do you find as well, um, I studied acting a bit when I was young too, and do you yeah. find that there's something similar for you in the acting process and in the writing process that in effect you're inhabiting another character in both cases? I do. I do. And I, I, it, it's good to hear you put it that way. I, I do find that something about the work is coming from the same place Although, and I never imagined that this would be the case, I feel so much more free and um, relaxed and, again, that word, liberated as a, as a writer than I do as an actor. But I'm sure that, you know, having an, having an ear for rhythm and, um, and dialogue is, is part of that, the same, the same skills that you have as an actor. Yes, and I suppose finding that point of truth that enables you to be honest whether you're performing or creating a, a character. That's right. That's right. But, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking back over over my years as an actor and I studied acting at Victorian College of the Arts and there was a subject called performance making where instead of working with other writers' scripts, we made up our own work. And I can recall feeling much more comfortable um, than I ever did when I was interpreting, you know, other scripts, I, I, I really enjoyed that, that part of the work, performance making, and that's probably because all along I'm better as, um, as, as someone who works autonomously and doesn't, doesn't attempt to interpret other people's words but makes them up myself, it seems. So how do you feel then in that instance about um, somebody else interpreting your words? Because there's an impending film, isn't there? There is. I feel ex I feel really excited about it, mostly because I find that once I have written the book, then a part of me really lets it lets it go, and it's quite organic. It's not something I have to force myself to do. It just comes naturally. I'm really involved all the way through the writing process, obviously, and then once the character is between the covers, so to speak, a part of me seems to detach uh, without wanting to sound too cold about it and, and move on. And, and I, I feel really happy for, for people to interpret the book or the, the film script in, in whatever way they want to. That's what I'm saying now, hopefully. Who knows what I'll be saying when I'm sitting there watching it. I'm not sure. But I, feel, I think, you know, I've made um, a number of picture books and I'm sure that all those films on a much bigger and more sophisticated level it's the same thing somebody's interpreting your words and finding pictures for them yeah. and I always found that um, 
once I'd surrendered the, the, the script, or the, the manuscript, I was, I've always been quite relaxed about, about the illustrator's interpretation of the words. And I noticed there's a, an American trailer for the book, which is um, quite interesting. It, it certainly has an I American voice in it. I too. Yeah, I saw that. I, was really, I thought that was pretty, really effective, actually. Yes. <laughs> and it made me, made me see the potential for the film. It was really eerie, but exciting as well. Mm. So would, you wouldn't consider acting in the film yourself, would you? Oh, golly, well, the only character I could play would be Sack. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't want to play her, would you? It would be a very hard role. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, who knows? That's an interesting question. In my, in my mind, Sack is a lot older, well, not a lot older, but a, a decade older or so than I am. Um, but again, that, that's going to be up to the director, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Now, um, you've been shortlisted for the Prime Minister's Literary Awards with yes. some pretty heady names as well. I know. I blushed when my name was read out uh, up against those names. I was so overcome. Yeah, Flanagan and uh, oh, there's Joan London, lots of other people. Yeah. Yeah. So it's um, does it change things for you as a writer? Do you feel it kind of gives you a mandate to, I guess, continue working in the adult area? That's an interesting question. Um, do you know that it, that, that it changes less than you think? You know, you, you you still sort of wake up um, anxious about your work and nervous about the next project. And um, what I've learned through having books published and, and being shortlisted and having awards is that the real satisfaction and the only time that, that the time when the work really feeds you is in the doing of it. And the rest, the rest can make you a little bit anxious and... Um, Yes, it's, it's 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 a disillusioning sort of process in a way, but it, it just reminds you that it's the creative process that is that is the one that is meaningful. Um, does that make sense? Oh yes, it does. Yeah, but I, I mean, suppose there's also the sense of I guess just dealing with that insecurity that naturally comes with writing, and to have such a you know such a heavy duty body of you know, saying to you, you know, objectively, forget about your insecurities. Make yeah. It's good. You're right. I think I'm going to have a nice day today. My <laughs> writing will come, come more easily. No, you're absolutely right. And friends keep repeating this to me too. And I think, yeah, it would be nice to spend a little more time or, 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 or feel more confident. Isn't that interesting? Because once again, um you know, in a way, having that acknowledgement can, can make you feel, can you, can you live up to your own work now? <laughs> the, the expectation. That's um, yes. th there was a famous playwright, I think it's Edward Albee, did he write um, the Virginia Woolf? Oh, sorry, oh, I'm, I'm getting myself confused. I think, I think it was the playwright Edward Albee who wrote, uh, who said that every time you tackle a new piece of work it's as if it's the first mm. and I remind myself of that because and, and that's probably a good thing because it means you're still challenging yourself in your work yes well I suppose um, one thing that that clearly distinguishes one foot wrong from any other book that you've written is the potential audience that's true do, that's do you feel true. I mean well how what would you say the youngest reader that you you know, you would um, point to for one foot wrong. 
Well, it's, it's interesting, you know, because as a, as a children's author, I go into schools and I meet a lot of students and I met some, um, some girls who were probably year 10, year 11 and they were somewhere between 15 and 17 and, and they were interested in reading it and I felt a little bit concerned about that. I'm really not sure. I'm, I really craft the book um, and the characters for me and for them, and I'm not. I, I'm not. I don't have a huge awareness of the of the readership and how it might affect. Um, I, I'm not. When I'm involved with the characters and the story, I'm not thinking of the mental health <laughs> of my readers. So. It's a tricky question. Mm. Because don't certainly, encourage any. Yes. What, what do you think, Maggie? Well, I, I think certainly a year 11 or 12 student would be fully capable of reading it. I mean, I think, you know, a 12-year-old who reads well could read it and understand it. But it's a place I don't know that I'd want to put. And maybe year 11 and 12 is adults just about. Anything. Maybe. I Not so if you're, you're in the wrong that. place. If you're in the wrong place, you know, Psychologically, I don't think it would be, you know, it could be quite a harmful book to read if, if you're a teenager going through all the difficulties that teenagers have to face. Yes, I don't know. I, I think, you'd, you know, you'd want right at the edge of high school. You'd say it I, I think so. I think so. Mm. So your book has been taken on and promoted in the U.S. just over a year after, after the Australian debut, which doesn't happen very often. Um, have, you, have you noticed differences in the take-up or in the way in which people in the different countries have responded to the book? It's all very it's all very recent. You know, I'm just receiving my translated copies in the mail now. And I've read a number of blogs from the United States and I'm really pleased to to, to read that they've appreciated it in, in the same way many Australian readers have and um, really embraced it. So so that's terrific. But I don't know enough yet. Again, you know, I tend to be, I tend to be anxious about people's response to my work. So I just, I, I avoid finding out too much about it, and I just engage in the next, in the next writing project. I, I wonder if it's, I, I bury my head in the sand a little bit when it comes to what happens after the book gets published. I don't know if that's common or, or, or a bad thing or. For example, I get very nervous when I go into bookshops now. Instead of feeling filled with jubilation and, you know, and thrilled about it, I get nervous about where's the book going to be on the shelf and do people know about it? And do you look for it? Sometimes, but if I can't find it, you know, it can it can really ruin my afternoon. So, um, it, the bookshops have become a very different experience for me now that I'm published. So again, I'm I'm learning that that I feel most comfortable when I'm working with the words. Yeah, immersed in it. Yeah, immersed in it, immersed in the music of it. And I suppose it's, you know, they're very different aspects of the brain that you use when you're promoting as opposed to when you're actually creating. That's right. I mean, I love talking about the book and I I, I love talking about the characters and, and what happens to the character and... And because of the children's writing, I've had to do a lot of public speaking because I go into all those schools and meet students. Um, but when it comes to things like like sales and publicity and bookshops and royalties, that's where I get nervous. 
Yes. Um, now, do you think you'll continue to write books for children as well as adults, or do you, do you feel like you'll you'll be doing some more work in the adult arena next? Again, it's it's difficult to predict because because there's so much mystery involved in which stories want to get told and which characters have a story to tell and. So I can't say for sure. Currently, though, I'm I'm working on a project for adults and a project for children. Um, I've been commissioned to write something for children again, and so I'm working with the two alongside each other, and and that's pretty interesting. But there's less difference than you think because I'm doing I'm writing the story for myself and uh, and and for the story and for the characters. Um, the process isn't different because of the different age of the readership. That's what I keep stressing, that, uh, that the, the creative process in each book is different because each story is different, but not because of, of its marketability for either children or adults, if that makes sense. Mm. And I suppose, I mean, you know, you, again, your book, because of the intensity of what happens, Maybe on the outer limit, but the, you know there are many books um, where maybe in in one market they might be sold as young adult and another as as you know full adult, and it doesn't. The distinction is really arbitrary. It's a marketer's determination. That's right. And um, you know, there's been some the book thief, for example. Mm. Which story was that? The book thief, for example. Oh, the book thief, exactly. And also, I'm thinking of the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. Yes. Um, which I enjoyed immensely. And even uh, the beautiful catcher in the rye. Yes, or the light of the eye. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So um, I don't see the distinction myself so strongly. Mm. I think that 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 is about marketing, isn't it? And and finding different ways to reach the greatest numbers. Yes. Well, good luck with it all. We're just about out of time, but um, particularly good luck with the the literary awards. We'll be watching them closely. Thank you so much, Maggie. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. It's been terrific. Now, um, our next guest is the author of novels of a very different kind. <laughs> not, oh, right. Not too intense, despite the plethora of exploding heads. So, um, <laughs> who is your next author? Um, it's Matthew Riley. Ah, something very different. Very different indeed. And he'll be with us to talk about his new novel, The Five Greatest Warriors. So okay. that's all for today. Thank you, Sophie. Thanks so much, Maggie. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.